folks are folks are coming in. This is good. Lovely. We okay, Dr. Swanson? Excellent. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see everybody here today. Uh, we, uh, before we begin, want to make sure that we say thank you uh, to Dr. Alicia Toso uh, and the, the Honors Program uh, for facilitating uh, this Brown Bag Lunch series uh, of conversations. We want to make sure that we say thank you to Dr. Kiana Battle and the Liberal Arts Subdivision uh, and to Dr. Troy Swanson uh, and the Library uh, for being uh, ever gracious uh, hosts uh, for us to be here uh, today. In 1908, uh, the Tunguska explosion in Siberia knocked down an area of forest larger than London. Most scientists believe that a fragment of an asteroid or a comet caused the blast, but neither a crater nor unmistakable remnants of a meteorite have ever been found. Over the last century, the mysterious nature of the event has prompted a wide array of speculation and investigation including from science fiction writers and voluntary researchers. Some have even explained Tunguska as a nuclear explosion triggered by aliens. Today we're joined by Dr. Andy Bruno from Northern Illinois University, where he will recount the intriguing history of the event and the investigations into it. For grounding the significance of mystery in environmental history, it will show how efforts to understand the explosion have shaped the treatment of the landscape, how uncertainty allowed alternative forms of knowledge to enter scientific conversations as well, and how cosmic disasters have influenced the past and might affect the future. Please welcome Dr. Andy Bruno. Yeah, okay, I'm mic'd, right? All right, thank you so much. Um, thank you. Uh, soon to be Dr. Fulton, uh, <laughs> for, for uh, inviting me to talk about um, what is my new, uh, new book. So this is going to be talk about the book itself. Um, and just before I get started, I want to say, um, I'm, as a professor of history at Northern Illinois University, when you all finish here at Moraine Valley, if you're interested in continuing your studies on, we, uh, we always love um, to get um, students from here and many other places, but you know, uh, I would say that the history program is very welcoming to um, uh, students who come in from community colleges after they finish uh, their studies there. Um, so, what I want to talk about today is again this book project, and I, I was going to start off giving a very brief of what what it was, but I think uh, we are kind of already got this. This is this big explosion. What is the Tunguska event? Okay, so this is this big explosion in 1908 that is pretty much the biggest asteroid event in modern history. So, like, you know, it's not nothing compared to the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs, but had it hit, you know, downtown Chicago, millions of people would have been dead, right? But instead, it occurs in the middle of Siberia. And I was interested in this event because, I mean, I'm a specialist in Russian and Soviet history. I've worked on topics about human interactions with the natural world, what we call environmental history. Um, and I wanted to find this, like, you know, essentially a thing to look at, like a, a story to look at. Um, and so, and partially because of that, like, I want to actually kind of just 
go through the chapters of the book because this book, even though it's an academic book, it's, it's written sort of as a narrative history. Um, so I open, and this is what I'm asking you to do. Imagine you're in the middle of nowhere in Siberia. Okay, so Siberia is not a very densely populated place, but even for Siberia, you're nowhere near a town. You're just in the middle of this vast boreal forest, what they call the taiga, and you come across an image, uh, images like this. Bunch of trees all aligned, had fallen down, all in a pattern from a, uh, facing the same direction for um, away from the center point. Um, you might be like, okay, well, what happened here? Could it have been some storm? Well, that'd be a pretty darn big storm, right? Could it have been some timber operations? No one's no nearby. There's no roads nearby. There's nothing like that. Plus, the trees are uprooted. They're not cut off. They're the, 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 the roots of the trees are sticking up in the air, all going out from center, right? Um, and then you say, okay, okay, but maybe it was like a meteorite or something like that. Right? Well, if it was a meteorite, there'll be a crater, a big chunk of metal in it, right? But there's not. There's none. So what is it? Right? And this is the thing that has intrigued people, investigators, since shortly after the event happened um, and continues to befuddle some people today, even though, as I'll get to, there is an explanation that sort of mainstream science gives us for it. Um, and so the larger project takes this mystery and then uses the whole concept of mystery and unpacks it to look at its role in, what I, in environmental history. Now, environmental history very broadly is the type of history that looks at human engagement with the non-human world. So things like everything from like the establishment of national parks and conservationists and, and environmental politics to what it's like to live by a mountain, right? Like these are all types of topics that come into environmental history. And I think that this story of this explosion gives us a unique realm, a unique um, view into environmental history because it foregrounds the role that mystery in it. And I mean mystery in two main senses here. One, the fact that there actually is plenty about the natural world that we don't know and we won't ever know, right? There's a, the, 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 our command over nature, is, as impressive as our cities and industry are, um, is always, will always be fairly limited. And so the capacity for non-human things to surprise us will always remain. Um, but also, that mystery is something that gets culturally imposed. It's something that by thinking about something and declaring it a mystery is something that's just like, we don't care about that. We, we turn things into mysteries. And that, in this case, plays a really interesting role in how this particular landscape was understood, treated, and engaged with by human societies. Um, so I have three sort of main dimensions about the way that mystery plays a role in this story. One is that um, it, it sort of is the main overarching logic uh, in how this part of Siberia is treated during the 20th century. And what I mean by that is they don't build a city there. They don't plant agriculture there. They don't build a road there. They don't declare it a militarized zone that no one goes into. They don't put a, 
initially they don't put a nature reserve there. They will eventually. Um, it's used as this space of scientific engagement to try to figure out the mystery, and that shapes an entire array of how um, the territory is treated by people. Um, the fact that it's a mystery also allows um, unofficial actors to become present in the scientific uh, endeavor and endeavor to understand it. Okay, so as I'll talk about in a minute, a science fiction writer proposes a working hypothesis that then amateur researchers go out and investigate for years and years and years, right? Um, and so it blurs these boundaries. Um, and then finally, it's that uh, the role of mystery is that it, um, this whole idea of cosmic disaster um, is sort of comes into existence um, as people are working in, out and solving this event, right? The idea that asteroids could cause extinction events was not known when people start, when this thing happened or when people started investigating it. And they're constantly thinking about, wait, okay, so if it's a comet, can Halley's Comet come and kill us, right? Things like that. So it becomes this whole way of thinking about natural disasters that um, for both the um, actors and for later historians. A final thing just about my approach to this is that I, um, this is, you know, this event becomes really important in international science um, to, uh, and, and, and there's a very much an international story, but I ended up focusing very much on the Russian-Soviet story, and thank goodness because I could never do the research that was involved um, for this project today because, you know, I, I went to these places, I spent months in archives, I interviewed people in Russia and in remote parts of Siberia, and after um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine into, uh, a year ago, that whole world has been disrupted and become impossible. I, I, I wanted to send copies of this book to people who would help me, and I eventually had to like get someone I knew who was still going over there because she's a Russian citizen to smuggle them in because you can't even send it, um, send postage to Russia anymore right now. Um, Okay, so uh, now, again, I'm going to go through the story now. I, that was sort of my setup. Um, so June 30th, really, it was June 17th by the Russia's calendar at the time because they were still under an old calendar. This huge, massive explosion occurs over central Siberia. And when I say remote for Siberia, here's what we're talking about. Here's this line of towns that are along the, uh, the Trans-Siberian Railroad. It's way up here, right? Um, and it's a territory um, that um, was mostly home to this indigenous group called the Ivanki, um, who were some of the main closest witnesses to it. But you had, you know, also had people see this fireball in the sky descend down over hundreds of kilometers in that area. And, in, and this territory um, right here, it leaves, is all the forest that is knocked over by this explosion. Um, and, you know, we do later have some testimony of some of the people who were closest by there. So I'm not going to read this all right now, but this is an Ivanki woman um, named Akulina who describes um, she was close in one of those yellow dots, close to um, the center of where the explosion happens, um, and describes, you know, their her tent being uh, knocked over, uh, her husband yelling and moaning and breaking his arm. Um, and then later, uh, they, she sees this sort of uh, landscape that has been utterly transformed by it. 
right? Uh, and uh, where she, what is it? Um, uh, the force is not, uh, we saw the marvel, an awful marvel, the force is not ours. I'd never seen such a forest. It was strange in some way. Here we had had a thick, dull, uh, dark old forest, and now in many places there was no forest at all. The mount, on, the, on the mountains all the trees lay, it was light, everything was far off was visible. Um, mountains turned into bogs, and it was impossible to go far. Um, so it utterly transformed, uh, transformed landscape. Um, and also in the immediate aftermath, so in the immediate aftermath, you know, this Akulina, she's with her um, husband and, and another guy, Vasily, um, and her husband's arm pretty much gets infected and he dies. Um, and this is important because, <clears throat> to point out, because uh, one of the sort of myths about this event is that no one died. And actually we have pretty good, um, it, it takes reading the evidence very carefully and there's reason there was ambiguity in it, um, but it's pretty clear that her husband died. So there, so there were people who died. There were um, people who got injured um, uh, by, by, being, by the explosion, not the shockwave, the explosion causing them to be knocked about or their tents um, blowing over. Um, there were dead animals, um, reindeer herds that were supposedly flew, flown into the air with this explosion. Um, the, the forest itself, of course, was knocked over. Animals that uh, relied on that habitat, um, some disappeared from that area. Um, and of course, there were rumors um, that, and panic that spread throughout the area. This is an important moment. This is 1908. So in Russia, the two things had just recently happened. There would, had been the, a, a war with Japan, so there were rumors that this was Japan invading. Um, uh, Russia had lost a war to Japan in 1905. Um, Russia had also had a revolution that um, uh, is, was much smaller than the, Rush, the revolutions that come later, but there were people who were like, this is God's wrath for having waged revolution. That was what was some of the rumors going on um, in, in the um, time. Um, and what I think, there's several things that are interesting about this. So first off, you know, this I think very clearly comes as a disaster. I mean, because we actually have people hurt, right? It might not be a disaster if no one's hurt, right? Um, it also allows us to see that this idea of like how people are vulnerable to disasters and susceptible to disasters has even occurred in something as like sort of far off as a cosmic explosion, right? That even there, even in this, some of our ideas, well, we can understand how some people are vulnerable to disasters and how people, other people aren't um, uh, come into play. So there's actually social and environmental determinants of it, something that sort of stretches the idea of um, disasters being socially determined and influenced to their highest extent. Um, in the new, there were newspapers at the time and international noticed, and they already called it a meteor, um, but then it was forgotten about. Um, and it was forgotten about until the 1920s. So there was like this blip, there was some stuff going, that went on, but beyond the region itself, um, and in the region, so one other thing is in the region itself, the Venki actually talked about a spirit um, inter, uh, named Agdi intervening and a dispute between clans, and being, Agdi was an iron bird that sort of caused the, the explosion. Um, so there was, was that other sort of idea. But, but after that, and beyond the Evenki, it was not really known about. Until the 1920s, where you had this guy, Linnead Kulik, 
um, decide to go investigate it. Now this guy, I mean, he's one of these people where you have, you, this whole story doesn't really work, doesn't, doesn't look anything like what it ends up being without his own sort of idiosyncrasies, weirdness, and obsessions. He's like, there's a meteorite out in the middle of Siberia, I'm going to go find it, I'm going to stay out there in the cold by myself for months on end because I need to find this meteorite. Okay, and he first starts an expedition in 1921 that doesn't get that far. They don't even like get anywhere near it. And then they come back in 1927 and he finds, he, he, he gets it. He, he, talk, he has help from some of the indigenous Venki nearby. He relies on them, but they also don't really want to show him the site for both, um, both out of beliefs that it might be a cursed site, but also uh, it's pretty clear that they, um, you know, are wary of outsider interference. Um, uh, so he does find it, but then um, he uh, has to go back because he's pretty much by himself and can't actually, and they won't help him anymore. So then he's able to organize another big expedition in 1928, and he brings along several other people, um, and this is the place where they go to this place, it's, they talk about how eerie it is, a bunch of them get scurvy, a bunch of them get sick, uh, they evacuate, um, except for Kulik, who's left alone in the taiga, and um, in this very sort of interesting moment where it's unclear whether there was some sort of shenanigans going on behind the scheme, they make this international um, story that, hey, we got to go save this meteorite specialist out in the middle of the taiga. Um, and uh, they, they do it. They, 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 they sponsor this rescue mission, and when they find him in the middle of the, by himself, he's like, can't we, all right guys, let's finish up the expedition. We gotta go, you know, find all of this. He almost had died out there, but he immediately is like, let's go, go finish this expedition. But then this is where, the fact that he had gone out there looking for a meteorite, and didn't find either a crater or a big chunk of metal, uh, it becomes an international mystery. And this is where you get uh, international press starting to talk about it. Um, you know, he writes bad poetry about it. Um, and it becomes uh, for, uh, groundwork to make an even bigger multi-year expedition that occurs the next year. So it's a, it starts in 1929 and goes through, through 1930. Um, and this is where this whole idea of mystery solving as a type of environmental action, uh, interaction comes into play. They do everything from uh, searching, you know, running magnometers over the ground to find iron fragments, connecting drilling and ge geodesic analysis, draining wetlands. So here there's this big thing called the Susla funnel. They, big a they, they build, uh, dig a big hole and then drain the whole thing out thinking they're going to find a meteorite, and they don't. Um, uh, as well as they do stuff like gathering uh, uh, eyewitness testimony and collecting samples. Um, this whole endeavor is, is really fascinating and it, play, it intersects with all sorts of politics going on in the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, Kulik is denounced as, uh, by, by some of the workers on there as a class enemy and has to go sort of account for his uh, actions. Um, 
and you know, one of the guys who denounces him, who uh, this guy Sergei Kumnikov, who he's literally holding in this picture right here. Uh, you know, in vain, Kulik, you wander in vain. You tear out the sophagum, the, the moss that had grown up. You will not find a meteor. You will leave the taiga in shame. He like scrawls that onto a tree in the middle of these expeditions. Um, so then again, the, these expeditions, they don't find a meteorite. Like they spend a bunch, all, they apply all these ideas of how to do it. They spend a, a year and a half out there and they don't find it. They begin to have these other you know, efforts to do so. Um, there's a small expedition in the late 30s, um, and they plan a big expedition in 1941, and then the Nazis invade um, the Soviet Union in 1941. And so there's no expedition that happens. Kulik enlists. He's 58 years old, uh, and he, but he's like, I'm going to go kill some fascist scum. Uh, but he dies very quickly. He's caught in a POW camp and pretty much starved to death um, uh, at the time. Um, the war, the World War II, gives rise, though, to a new sort of state, and the death of Kulik gives rise to a new stage in this story, um, where fiction sort of joins in these mystery-solving uh, efforts. Um, there's a lot going on here. There was actually some fictional accounts of this explosion in the 1930s that might have influenced this. But it's clear that the nuclear age, the oncoming space age, the Cold War, international interest in UFOs, Roswell, uh, the Roswell alien ideas are, are, are occurring around this time. Um, and in the Soviet Union itself, the fact that you have this like actually educated population with these interests in popular science, all of this is playing into you know, this sort of environment where, where a fictional idea could become a working hypothesis, which is what, is, what happens. I would say that the site of the, uh, of the event um, matters itself. The actual um, ground where the, the research had happened and the circumstances surrounding it play a role as well. Um, and it becomes a real matter of controversy, as you can see. We, this is a newspaper clip where two um, uh, meteorite scientists complain, you know, Tunguska meteorite or a Martian ship. And their answer is a resounding no, but that's not this guy's re uh, over there's uh, reaction. So he publishes this story. He supposedly hears um, about her, the explosion of, her, of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan at the end of World War. Uh, too, uh, and he comes up with this idea because he hadn't heard of this Tunguska event. He's like, wait a second, an above-ground explosion, that wouldn't have left a crater, that wouldn't have left a meteorite. Okay, so maybe a, 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 a meteorite that was made out of uranium. And then he goes and talks to meteorite specialists, realizes that can't happen, and then he's like, well, what could have had a, a nuclear explosion in 1908? I know a crash of an alien spaceship that was running on nuclear fuel, right? And he includes this, this is this guy, Alexander Kazantsev. He includes this hypothesis in a, in a fictional story, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, science, a work of science fiction, and that's published in January 1946. You know, two months later, the New York Times writes an article that treats his fiction as a working hypothesis. Right? 
Um, and then within the Soviet Union itself, um, Kazantsev uh, arranges to put on a performance at the Moscow Planetarium about where that's based on this whole idea. And so he kind of goes from writing this story and kind of like thinking it's an interesting idea to like very much promoting it in two years. And it becomes this whole big controversy. Now, like just to, this is the height of like Stalinist censorship. This is not known, but there, there is a big debate in the Soviet public about whether or not they should be talking about nuclear spaceships in 1948. Um, and there's even rumors, for instance, that um, the head of the Soviet secret police, Lavrenti Beria, ordered a secret expedition to the Tunguska site in 1949, right as they're built, the Soviets are actually building their own nuclear weapon to see if Tunguska had evidence of a nuclear explosion. I haven't been able to verify that, but that's, there's rumors about it, and there's something to suggest that there might have been some photographs taken of the territory in 1949. That's all, that's all I got. Um, this idea, though, sort of uh, unleashed, you know, lets the genie out of the bottle, as uh, this guy Felix Zeigel said, um, who, sorry, incidentally, is the, is the person in the planetarium show. Uh, he becomes the, what's called, the, you know, for some people call the father of Soviet ufology, the studies of UFOs, unidentified flying objects. Um, and it becomes this whole sort of, you know, subfield in the Soviet Union about thinking about um, extraterrestrial contact um, and also thinking about different ways to explain this Tunguska explosion. So, you know, after they didn't find a meteorite, there was some scientist saying, hey, maybe it was a comet or something like that that wouldn't have left remnants, and we'll come back to that. But you get things saying, oh, maybe it was antimatter. Maybe it was a miniature black hole. Uh, one of my favorites, maybe it was Nikola Tesla experimenting with his death ray that caused this blast. Um, all sorts of, of um, ideas that were really based on trying to kind of be as original as they, and, and maybe not necessarily tied to evidence, but as original as possible. It also becomes a fodder for, for science fiction beyond Kazantsev. And this includes sort of relatively high quality science fiction like the st stuff by the Strugatsky brothers who are really famous in Russia, Thomas Pynchon, uh, Against the Day, um, and this very difficult author, Vladimir Sorokin's Ice Trilogy. Um, and even at the Tunguska site today, you have a, 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 a monument of a, of, a UF, of a spaceship coming in. Um, now, again, this might have been the end of the story. So, okay, there's the fictional thing that comes out. But if not for um, the fact that amateur expeditions in the 1950s, amateur Soviet researchers, decide to go see if Kazantsev is right, to see if it was a UFO. These begin, um, there's a, uh, a new a sort of official expedition of the Soviet Academy of Sciences in the late 50s um, that they go out and try to see if they can figure out what was going on in terms of a meteorite. Um, but then you have these voluntary um, uh, researchers who form, uh, one of them, the biggest of them form this group called the Complex Amateur Expedition. And they go out to see if they're right. 
they uh, actually get uh, access to uh, radio meters and they find that they actually heightened radioactivity at the site. Um, and this initially causes a whole big hullabaloo because, well, maybe that is. It turns out, you know, there's actually a lot of nuclear fallout in the late 50s, uh, as well as um, the place where it is is on a geological the Siberian traps that has a different radio uh, profile of radioactivity. Anyway, um, this whole group uh, plays this very interesting role in the late 50s and early 60s where they start to actually collaborate with the uh, official professional meteorite scientists. Um, and then the meteorite scientists kind of get sick of the whole thing. Uh, and, and stop doing expeditions uh, after 1961, but this group continues to do it. Now, um, these, the first group only had 12 people, including this guy, Gennady Plahanov, who's right here. That's me without a beard. Um, and that guy up there, Valery Kovshinnikov, who um, uh, uh, I was able to, both of them I was able to interview uh, in 2018. Um, and both have now passed away. They were, but they, they, these, these were two of the guys who were like, we got to, in the 1950s, were like, we got to go see if this spaceship's real, right? Um, and, you know, this whole endeavor then to try to see if this was a, possibly a nuclear high, uh, explosion allows them to engage in different types of research, too. I mean, beyond measuring radioactivity, they, they're like, okay, well, maybe that didn't work because of that. But let's take soil samples. Let's see if uh, there were genetic mutations in pine needles or ants. Let's uh, look for geo uh, uh, magnetic anomalies. All sorts of other types of, of research goes into trying to shed light on whether or not this could have been a nuclear explosion. It's all occurring at the same time that, uh, oh, sorry, on that, as you, this other uh, advocate of the nuclear hypothesis says, the forest will not be silent. It will, it, it will help solve this mystery, right? What, like, the trees themselves will, will, will reveal nature's secrets. Um, all of this is going on at the same, so like this sort of deep research into whether or not it could have been aliens, while the mainstream meteorite establishment decides it must have been a comet. Because the comet could have not could have exploded above ground, uh, and not left as much of a trace is what the idea was. Okay. Now, um, another part of this story is that I look at these actual uh, expeditions and what it was like to be on them. Um, they developed this sort of distinctive subculture in so in the Soviet Union. Right? These were you know. Over time, thousands of, uh, more than a thousand different uh, people participated in these um, events. A lot of them your age, right? There's most of the people in this audience, students. Like, you know, someone would say, hey, you want to go spend the summer in the, amongst the mosquitoes in the middle of the forest? Um, and and, and they'd, they'd come out and, and they'd make their own, well, I'll show you in a second. They'd make their own songs, they'd write their own literature, People would have, you know, uh, romances that sort of only lasted while they were out there that summer. Um, and it was a place, though, that I think is, in, in the Soviet context, really, it's not just like a camp, because this was like pretty unique in terms of they were able to kind of go out and be in their own world that was not necessarily part of the mainstream Soviet experience. It wasn't oppositional to it, 
but it was uh, different. And that allowed some of their own sense of self to sort of emerge through um, these very valuable experiences that these people had going out to the taiga of multiple summers in a row. Um, they created their own zine, this Kerumnik. Um, they carved, they, they appropriated um, the Vanki deity Agdi into uh, their own folklore as a group. Um, they engaged with animals in a particular way. It's like one wonderful story about this guy who becomes obsessed with chipmunks and kind of tries to tame the chipmunks. Um, uh, yeah, there are lots of songs, lots of poetry. Um, there's also, of course, you know, in terms of just looking at it, there's a lot of, this is an interesting place where we get to see some of the hierarchies in the Soviet Union. So class in particular, I mean, the Soviet Union is dedicated to not, was dedicated in theory to being a classless society, but you see all sorts of differences between, okay, these are the students and they're treating the people who operate the helicopters or the forest fire service in a particular way. Um, you see very hierarchical relationships between those coming from, you know, sort of Russian background and the Venki indigenous peoples on the ground, right? Um, you also see real interesting things going on with party connections. So some of the main leaders of this group are, you know, staunch communist party members, which allows them to kind of operate a little bit in a gray zone and, and do certain things. But then there's all these moments where, like, where like, you know, the, this complex amateur expedition is declared an anti-Soviet group and a bunch of people are arrested and there's all sorts of stuff like that that goes on as well. And like former friends like walk, turn to go to, across the street to avoid running into each other uh, in the town of Tomsk. Um, another part of this story um, that uh, I look at um, is very explicitly about nature conservation. So um, as these researchers start investigating the site in the 1960s, uh, these amateur researchers start investigating the site in the 1960s and beyond, they start to come to worry about uh, the possible industrial encroachment on the site. Um, there ends up being geological teams that are out there as well um, that are looking for oil. Siberia has a lot of oil, as becomes a big Luckily, there was not oil here. Um, and um, so since the late 60s and early 70s, this actually ends up being something that brings together the, the people who think it's aliens and the people who think it's a comet or a meteorite, uh, and they campaign to create a nature reserve. They initially are successful in the mid-80s. Um, like there's like this moment where they go out and there's like all sorts of um, damage that's done to some of the, like the, the treasured trails that they would had constructed to go out into on these expeditions. Um, and they make a temporary reserve. And then in 1995, after the Soviet Union has collapsed, they make a, um, uh, a permanent reserve. Um, and these, you know, these quotes here are just from different, very different types of researchers who were involved in this with very different views on it. Everyone from the, the middle, the sort of um, alien enthusiast to, to some of those who are uh, more uh, in, with mainstream views. Um, this story is really interesting as well because um, we see a different type of logic of nature protection that kind of emerges in the activism to create this nature reserve. Um, what I call conservative communist ideas of conservation and not just because that's an alliteration but because 
um, like the, the they're Communist Party members, right? And so there's kind of the Soviet mainstream, but their their ideas about why to preserve it is, end up kind of becoming very sort of clash of civilizations apocalyptic, right? They're they're like we humanity is a, is on a doomed course, and our only save possibility of savior is to like protect sites like this so that we can sort of understand our relationship in the cosmos. It's very sort of interesting, very different than hippies out in, you know, the Pacific Northwest sitting in trees, right? Like a very different logic, but both about protecting landscapes, right? Um, it's also notable that, um, you know, for the most part, the Evenki interest in this land and the, the idea that they're going to build this nature reserve that excludes Evenki, that's given very little thought. There is an Evenki man, uh, Valeri Elkin, who is for a few years the head of the reserve, but he's, he's not really concerned with Evenki interest either. Um, uh, that said, the fact that they create this nature reserve is ultimately successful, that this does not, this landscape still exists today, and it was not turned into a place for geological, for, for the mining industry. Uh, the final sort of main chapter in the book steps back and looks at the international story about this. Um, how Tunguska investigations, the investigations into this event looked very different from afar. Um, sometimes there was alignment, sometimes there were uh, researchers echoing this, each other, sometimes there was effort at collaboration. Um, but often there was conjecture that was based on very poor evidence um, that because essentially foreign researchers weren't reading Russian. Um, they had access to some of these publications but weren't reading Russian. Um, and so just in terms of like the ideas, so I mentioned them already, but things like uh, the com a comet, antimatter, a miniature vax hole, and Tesla's uh, uh, death ray, all of these actually emerged from abroad initially. They were not, the, the, the comet also idea also emerged in the same Soviet Union at the same time, but uh, they, they're independently, there were researchers abroad being like, oh, maybe it was a comet. Oh, maybe I heard about this antimatter thing. Maybe that was that, you know. Um, and, you know, there, early on, even in the 1930s, there was proposals to do expeditionary work from foreigners, but that didn't happen, uh, and it didn't, no foreigners really ended up being part of the expeditionary work until the late 1980s. The Japan, uh, a group from um, Japan, uh, the Sakura group, came. They had their own theory. Their theory was that um, Tunguska was caused, so in ancient, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, there was a civilization in Japan that had built spaceships, a group of Japanese had left, and then they were trying to return, their ancestors were trying to return, and they had an accident to Japan, and they had an accident and a spaceship class, their spaceship crashed over Tunguska. So ancient Japanese civilization returning. That was, the, that was, an, that was one theory. Um, uh, but, as ex but there were also, um, sort of more serious expeditions, including uh, a group uh, uh, from Italy out of the University of Bologna, NASA. Um, and these expeditions, uh, with a lot of, combined with a lot of other things, um, in terms of our understanding of near-Earth objects, which are asteroids or comets, um, came to there being a new sort of consensus. So 
essentially what the consensus is of what caused this is it wasn't a comet. It was a stony asteroid fragment, so not a hard metal, that could explode in the air. And there were certain things that happened, such as um, this collision of an, uh, of a, uh, with, uh, uh, on Jupiter in the 1990s, as well as the Chelyabinsk meteorite in 19, or sorry, in 2013, where we had like, people literally like, like cameras on their car capture this fireball in the air exploding. I was like, oh. A meteorite can explode, and then there only be little, little tiny fragments as opposed to a big fragment. Uh, and because of that, you know, the, the there's it's now Goose is now sort of understood as a medium-sized uh, uh, stony asteroid fragment in, in the mainstream conceptions. Um, and they even named an, the UN United Nations named International Asteroid Day to be June 30th in sort of honor of this this event. Um, in the final conclusion, I do something that is, you know, very much a privilege because a lot of times historians have to be very much like, this is how this is, helps us understand the historians, historiographical debates and uh, what historians are doing. I, I sort of throw that out. Uh, I've done that in a bit in parts, but I allow myself to kind of be like, what does this actually mean for the future environmental precarities of the planet? And how can we think about that? And I, you know, I think about a lot of things. I was taken, especially, so this image right here, I, this is in Vanavara, uh, these images. Well, this up here, okay, so the, up there is my image when I got to the site, okay? Um, but I didn't get to walk around the site in 2018. I was supposed to, but I wasn't able to because there were forest fires that year. The next year, 2019, there were even worse forest fires, and this image, went around the international media of a girl, like I had stood right there in this town of Vannevar wearing a face mask, right? A year later, we're all wearing face masks because of COVID, right? Um, and so the sort of multiple precarities that related to disease and, 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 and climate change and all of that um, really sort of made me think about it. But at the end of the day, this, what I, I actually think that Tunguska gives us a sort of positive thing is that even something as like crazy as a cosmic explosion really should cause us to think about the earthly side of it and how we are embedded in ecosystems and natural um, conditions uh, and not sort of fantasize about escaping to Mars and things like that, but actually embrace it because we're seeing how, you know, we're getting a glimpse of how we've been connected to this type of disaster in the past that has nothing to do with climate change, but that we're, uh, we're, we've been connected to these types of disasters in the past and that we might um, help prepare us for the future. So, thanks. I believe we have some time for questions. Uh, anyone have any questions for, uh, for Dr. Bruno? Do I speak Russian? Oh, yeah. Da, Yes. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I, you know, um, so yeah, I had to start learning Russian as an under, I started learning Russian as an undergraduate and then spent a bunch of time in St. Petersburg and other parts of Russia. Um, you know, you'd probably be better off going to place somewhere like Kazakhstan or or the, to, to learn, if you need to learn Russian today. Um, but uh, yeah, so. Um, it was part of sort of the whole journey was 
was de was developing an interest in Russia and then and, and learning the language. Others questions. What was your favorite part of your uh, journey in Russia? Well, okay, I, I, favorite is a, here's a here's a here's a good moment though, and it's related to the speaking Russian. So I, you know, when I went to this town of Vanavara, um, it was on the hundred and tenth anniversary of the Tunguska site blast, right? Um, so I was even like walking around the mor in the morning of you know of the hundred and tenth anniversary, like okay, like hundred and ten years ago, you'd see a big fireball in the sky, right? But there was a moment there where I was um, introduced to someone in this town. Um, this is a small town of like, I don't know, 3,000 people in the middle of nowhere in Siberia. And I, a Russian person you know, introduces me to this guy. And I start talking to him. And I'm like, something sounds weird. And we keep talking in Russian. And then I realize that he, uh, he's an American. He's a missionary from Appalachia, so he has an Appalachian accent. Uh, and he's out there living in his, with his family in this like, like middle of nowhere Russia. So <laughs> yeah, that was an amusing moment. <laughs> Others, well, I'll, it reminds me of a, a time we took, um, we took students from Rain uh, to uh, France uh, as a part of looking at the, the Normandy battlefields. Uh, and so we met up with some individuals from the uh, American uh, Battle Monuments Commission who worked with the cemeteries there and sort of that kind of thing. And, and same thing, if you're chatting with someone and, you know, my conversational French is, uh, I try, yeah. you know, uh, but uh, not, not for lack of, of great courses here and, and all that. Uh, but the individual who's there was um, uh, had been married and was living there in uh, Brittany for a number of years and that kind of thing. He was from Mississippi, and so yeah. his 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 French was absolutely beautiful. It was, yeah. was perfect, but with a dip, di a deep, thick Mississippi <laughs> Southern drawl, sort of you know, on petit peu, Monsieur. I'm like, okay, okay, you know, sort of that that kind of of, of those exchanges are always uh, always always delightful. Um, I, I did have a question, a comment, a question myself. Of one, your your talk is making me think of, you know, how to frame history from a variety of perspectives and the perspective of, of disasters, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of uh, environmental disasters, and looking sort of how those can can shape complex uh, systems and how because they can shape complex things around. Um, but my my question is. As someone who has a very scant understanding uh, of of Siberia uh, and and its history and its position, uh, you know, growing up, I think I sort of understood. Okay, I think there were camps there when Stalin was mean, right? Like that was about it. Uh, if you know, you know, in addition to your work. Uh, you know, if there are the folks who are interested in learning more about its history, you know, what types of things should they maybe gravitate towards? Uh, you know, other additional resources they can, you know, build on to increase their knowledge about it. That's great. Um, I mean, there's some good, really good books. Um, there's a book by a scholar named Janet Hartley that's like sort of an overview of Siberia. There's actually a book, uh, Conquest of a Continent by uh, Bruce Lincoln, who used to teach at Northern Illinois University a long time ago. Um, so there's sort of these, some of these overview books. There's also stuff about indigenous peoples. There's a book 
called Arctic Mirrors about um, uh, indigenous peoples. I mean, so there's a lot of resources. Um, there's in terms of just like all of that movies. Yeah, I, yeah there's good movies, but I, I don't. I don't. Not, not, nothing that's like particularly coming to my mind. Oh, there's this Kawasaka movie about um, uh, about uh, sort of reindeer herders in there. Um, I mean, and just sort of more broadly, I just think that one sort of main thing to think about is like sometimes if you don't know this anything about this area, you just look at a map. It's like Russia's really big; it has all of this territory. But actually, you know, pretty much if everything sort of um, uh, uh, west of, or sorry, east of the Urals, is you know a landscape that was only sort of. I mean, it wasn't was incorporated relatively early into a centralized Russian state, but is, you know, there was all sorts of indigenous peoples living there. There were all sorts of cultural connections to other parts of the, you know, parts of Asia and things like that, that, that really sort of shaped what this area was. And, you know, I mean, as late as the uh, 18th, 18th century, so 1700s, you had groups of Chukchi essentially pushing off, be, defeating the Russian state in wars at, at their periphery, right? So there's, there's a very deep, interesting, sort of history about um, indigenous people in Siberia that I think is underknown. You know, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I do think it's a really fascinating um, example as someone who's interested in information literacy, how we know things, how we make decisions of information, right, of the kinds of um, ideas that float around out there looking for evidence. So a thing happens in our world and ideas that are already in existence kind of glom onto that thing. So yeah. something happens in the environment. What is it? I don't know, aliens or, you know, <laughs> fill in the blanks, right? Like, the, but it's not like that thing happened and created aliens, aliens existed. And then this became an excuse or asteroids or whatever. And then also then equally. So when real science and exploration takes, takes place and the best decisions come to light, um, how those good decisions using actual evidence are now in competition with these other stories that are out there. And so, um, you know, I think everyone looks through their own lenses at these stories, but I look at it, I'm like, this is an information literacy story um, that's really um, fascinating. So thank you for that. Thanks. I, and I, absolutely. And it's, um, I mean, I didn't end up focusing as much on the that part for a variety of reasons. I actually know someone who's looking at not Tunguska itself, but a broader phenomenon. But I th one thing I would just say that's like really interesting to put it, like the, the sort of wild ideas about this event come from very educated people, right? And I think that that's sometimes something like it's, it's not, it's, it's kind of sort of unsettling, but like that Kazantsev guy, he's like a, mas a chess master, like and an engineer. He's like a brilliant guy. Cosmonauts went out to try to, see this. Nuclear physicists who have understandings of nuclear physics way above and beyond anything I'd ever bought into this, right? So it's, it's a very sort of interesting moment where, you, where the sort of, you know, it's a different informational moment than we're living in today where there's all sorts of distinct opportunities and challenges. But the, a key thing that I sort of take from this is it's, you know, it's really not about like people not being educated enough. It's something much more complicated is going on about how some of these ideas end up uh, uh, spreading and, 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 and gaining uh, people who are convic uh, convinced by them. 
other questions? I, I know, at least for, for me, you mentioned at the beginning um, of some of the difficulties in terms of uh, you know, conducting research now, uh, given the realities of uh, the war. Uh, you know, can you maybe speak to that a, a little bit of, for yourself and for other scientists and historians and others who are, are looking to, to conduct research and, and to do work of what kind of, um, what kind of difficulties uh, exist uh, in, in this new reality that many are facing? I mean, well, first off, of course, nothing compared to the realities of people living in under Russian bombardment in of Ukraine course. right now, or even Russians living in Russia, right? Like, like there, I mean, there's a patriotic culture that's behind the war right now, but there's a lot of people who want to have nothing to do with it, but are afraid of being thrown in prison to speak up. Um, yeah, I, I, I think we. I think in terms of understanding the country, it, it's both looking beyond. Um, uh, in terms of you know, there's a lot of stuff out there published. There's stuff, you know, very. So I still dig digging it deeply empirically. They, you know, a lot was digitized. So there's a lot of digital materials that people haven't actually looked at, and and, and focusing on that type of stuff. Um, doing work in other countries that were part of the sort of. Russian Empire or the Soviet Union at certain points, that type of stuff. Um, so, you know, Central Asia still has plenty of work to be done with it. If you want to do something on Imperial Russia, you know, <clears throat> Helsinki was part of the Russian Empire from 1801 till 1917. So, you know, you, you can do a lot of work in Finland. Um, but that, you know, and I would, but I would just sort of more sort of uh, broadly say, um, you know, there's this famous quote about the fog of war from Robert McNamara, sort of the ways that war can like distort thinking and distort decision making and it can distort humanity. So, I mean, I think that it's really important to maintain this understandings that these, the people living over there are complicated with varied lives, with varied interests and varied stories to tell and not letting everything be about Putin and how awful he is, though he's very awful. Well, thank you, Dr. Bruno. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you.